hardened hearts. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the ministry of your word. I thank you that in you, that in you there is life. And that life is abundant. It is not on short supply. And so that we can come to you at, at any moment and we can find in you everything we need and more. Surely goodness and mercy. The cup runs over with you. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are abundant. We thank you that you are beyond all things. We thank you that you are immutable, unchangeable, that you are forever God. The same yesterday, today, and forever. As we come to your word this morning, uh, as we come living in a shifting world that is constantly changing, uh, that is filled with uh, misinformation and filled with confusion, Lord, we thank you that your word brings to us true information and clarity. Uh, Lord, be, be, beyond having cognitive clarity, your word provides for us peace deep within our souls. And we pray that in your word here today, we would find your peace. In, in your word here today, we would find hope for what is to come in you. Lord, bless your word this day, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, church, today is a special Sunday. Of course, every Sunday is a special Sunday. Our community has been gathering on Sundays for about 2,000 years now as Christians, acknowledging this day as a special day of every single week. Uh, we call it the Lord's Day, in fact. It's that special. Sundays we call the Lord's Day in Christian tradition. Today we acknowledge the historic day of all historic days, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus the Christ. It is the beginning of the week for us. It is the beginning of, of faith for us and the beginning of life for us as we gather. And what makes Sunday special is that it commemorates the resurrection of our Lord. But what makes this Sunday special of all Sundays for us is it is the Sunday before that historic Resurrection Sunday, what we call Easter or Resurrection Sunday. The Sunday before Easter, the Sunday before Good Friday, is known as Palm Sunday. In Christian tradition, we often wear green, hence I got some green on. It's not leftover from St. Patty's or whatever. It's Palm Sunday. It's special. You throw on some green. And in other traditions, you might even come to church with palms and other things. Now, according to history, this is the weekend when Jesus rode into Jerusalem where he would begin what's known as his passion. Passion is a phrase that comes from uh, the Latin verb patior or passis sum, which just simply means what it, what it sounds like, uh, passion, which is suffering or enduring or bearing up under. The final week of Jesus's life was a, was a week of heavy endurance. It was a, a week of bearing up under. This is the, the week before his death, so this is the week of the last week of his pre-resurrection ministry. Beginning with Palm Sunday and ending with the cross on Calvary on Good Friday, this week was one, as I said, of bearing up under. It was a week of great toil. It was a week of conflict. Uh, we, we read about in, in history some historic moments that took place in this final week namely the cleansing of the temple. We read about the betrayal of Judas. We read about the agony of Gethsemane. We read about the arrest of Jesus, the unjust trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin and before Pontius Pilate. Being God, Jesus knew all of these heavy things were to come to pass. On, on a Sunday, we gather at the beginning of the week and we have no idea what, what, what is gonna happen in the week. Well, he, he comes in on Palm Sunday and he knows absolutely what's going to take place in this week. He's, he's God. He knows all things. He is caught off guard by none. Being, being God, he knows that. Being gracious, he, he faced the week with great joy and endurance for sake of his people whom he came to redeem. On the historic event of Palm Sunday, we witness the grace of the incarnate Son in full display as he comes into Jerusalem. This moment is recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. And whenever you see something recorded in all four of the accounts, you know it's significant, it's important. And so today I want to teach on this important moment so that we understand what is recorded for us in the canonical text. Today we will reflect on uh, one particular canonical text, the Gospel of Mark. But before we reflect on the Markin Palm Sunday passage, I want to take you into the book of Psalms to a section of the Hebrew Bible whose language is picked up 
in all of the gospel accounts, and we'll see it when we get to Mark. So first, before we study the Markian Palm Sunday account, let's, let's begin first in the book of Psalms, which of course predates it, and we'll see how Mark picks up the text, how the New Testament authors pick up the text of, of the book of Psalms as it relates to Palm Sunday. So the title of my message today is Psalms, Palms, and Passion. In today's sermon, we will begin first by exploring Psalm 118, so please turn there. And after we study some of Psalm 118, we'll move into the New Testament and look at Mark chapter 11 and 12, where the passion begins. So Psalm 118, we'll start there, then we'll move to Palm Sunday in the Gospel of Mark, and finally we'll come back to the ending of Psalm 18, 118, and hopefully it will all click. As you are turning to Psalm 118, let me give you guys some, some, some background to the Psalms and to this section. The book of Psalms was the ancient hymnal for the people of Israel. In Hebrew, the book of Psalms is known as the Tehillim. Tehillim is just what the Jewish people referred to the book of Psalms as. And it's good to know that because the Hebrew word Tehillim means praises. It is a book of praises. It is a, a, a book of worship. So today when we gather and we have online on, on our app and things, the songs for our worship, or if you came ready, maybe you, you printed it, you got it off of the internet or the email blast and you printed it. This is our Delray Church Tehillim. We have this and we, we come and we're ready to engage this. This is our Tehillim. The book of Psalms was the ancient Tehillim, the book of praises. It is the first book of the section of the Hebrew Bible known as the Ketuvim. The Ketuvim literally means writings, and the Ketuvim is the third section of what the Jewish people knew as the Tanakh. If you're talking to Jewish friends about the Hebrew Bible, uh, you can refer to it as the Tanakh. That's its ancient name. Tanakh stands for Torah, Navim, and Ketuvim. So we are, if you've opened the Psalms, in that final section of the Hebrew Bible known as the Ketuvim. On the front of the Ketuvim is where you find the Tehillim, the book of Psalms. It, it starts the writings and it starts it with praise. So before you start digging into the writings, you always want to have this book of praise in front of you, the Tehillim. The Tehillim, the book of, of Psalms, is, is one book in our Bibles today, but originally it, it had a five-fold division to it. It formed five books or five sections and each of the sections end with wonderful doxologies. And these five books of the Tehillim mirror or parallel in ways the, the first five books of the Tanakh, the to which is the Torah, the first five books of Moses. So the more you dig into Tehillim, the more you dig into Torah, those five books that start the Hebrew Bible, these five books that start the Ketuvim, you see these parallels in the way that God has revealed himself, that he has given his people history to understand, theology to, to, to behold of him, and also Tehillim so that their hearts would praise. God isn't interested in a mere uh, transfer of information to his people. He wants a transformation of their lives. And often it is the case that you'll find people who can geek out uh, on, on knowledge, and yet it's not reflected in their lives. They can unpack doctrine, but as it relates to duty in their life, they're, they're, they're deficient in that regard. We see in God's design of Scripture how he longs for all of these things to come together, our heads, our hearts, and our hands, as we serve, as we sing, and as we comprehend the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. So Psalm 118, it's a part of the Tehillim, a part of the Tanakh, and Psalm 118 actually is a part of the last of the five books of the Tehillim that mirror the Torah. Within this fifth book of the Tehillim, where we find Psalm 118, it comes at the very end of a section of songs that are known as the Hallel. The Hallel mean the songs of praise. So from 113 to 118, you have the Hallel. The Hallel were a part of the community's worship around the holidays, specifically and especially around Passover. So for your Jewish community, or if you have a Jewish upbringing, you're culturally or ethnically Jewish, uh, you know this is Passover season. And around Passover, families gather, and they have a book in their home known as the Haggadah, or the Haggadot, that's it in the plural. And you open the Haggadah, and the Haggadah has in it these psalms, from 113 to 118, and these psalms perform a part of your family worship at home. You break out the Haggadot, 
and you have a time of worship where these psalms would be uh, being rehearsed, read, uh, 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 memorized, and, and quizzed upon in, in the community. You would have a Passover Seder on the night that commemorated when God liberated his people Israel from bondage in Egypt. When God revealed himself through the prophet Moses as an abolitionist God who rescues them from physical uh, uh, in slavery, slavery in Egypt. He rescues them. And he rescues them through a series of miracles which crescendo in the miracle of Passover. And where they, they think of and they look back on how God rescued them through this Passover. They get their families together. They have a meal. The meal involves certain things that remind them of elements of the historic Passover. When judgment literally passed over their homes and judgment was applied to their enemies. Hence the title Passover. Passover hits. You get, you get your Haggadah. Your Haggadah has Psalm 113 through 118. You're reading these psalms together with a family. You, you read these psalms together with your friends. You have a special dinner. You bring people in. You start by reading Psalm 113 and Psalm 114. And then you break into a time of meal. And that meal has elements, as I said a moment ago, that remind us of certain things in that Passover event. On the table, there are four cups of wine. And the wine is drank throughout the night, and it has certain elements to remind the people of certain things. Religious symbols, expressions of hope, reflections on history. Uh, as well as, as the ritual of drinking wine, there is the ritual of breaking bread. All of these things actually are what, what are reinterpreted in Christ when he gathers his disciple and he institutes communion. It was a part of Passover. And so he uses the bread on the table to speak about his body in incarnation. He uses the wine on the table to speak about his blood in the cross. We'll get there at the end of the sermon. So then you gather, you get your Haggadah, you start by reading Psalm 113 and 114, you start having meal, you start having wine. That's all a part of symbols, the food and the drink. Then you start reading Psalm 115, Psalm 116, Psalm 117, and Psalm 118. You'd read Psalm 118 at the end of the meal. The time then moves into a fourth and final cup of wine that is presented. You have songs together with, with this final cup of, of wine. There's a, a final bow on the gathering that takes place when everything is, is done. There's a fifth cup that actually is brought out. The Kash Shel Eliyahu Haknavi, which is the cup of Elijah the prophet. The front door of the home is opened and the adults have the children run outside and they look to see if Elijah the ancient prophet has come back outside of their home. Often with a Haggadah, there would even be a, a, a chair that is reserved at the table where everyone is gathered for the prophet Elijah. And that, 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 Kashel Eliyahu Hanavi, that cup of Elijah, would be placed at that chair just in case Elijah shows up. These psalms, what I want you to see by way of background as we step into them, have this eschatological hope. The Jewish people believed that there was a Messiah that was to come, and the precursor to this Messiah would be Eliyahu, the prophet Elijah, was going to come back. And so go outside, go see if he has come, children. And the children will come back inside and say, no, mama, no, papa, he wasn't there. And together, all those who gathered in the home would say, Lashana haba'a That is to say, maybe next year in Jerusalem he will come. This is a meal that they had uh, once a year reflecting on Passover, which Jesus then passes on to the church and says, this is a meal that you have when you gather on Sundays. We do it once a week. And as we drink the cup each week, which we'll do at the end of the message, likewise, we say, well, maybe next year in Jerusalem he will come. No, next week, maybe tomorrow he'll come before we have a chance to drink this cup again. So these Tehillim, these Psalms, have an eschatological edge to them. Not an escape to heaven, but a renewal of the earth from Jerusalem through the Messiah to the nations. The children are literally going outside looking for a physical prophet. This isn't an escape hatch. This is God coming back and invading the earth to renew it. 
As students of the Bible, we know that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, came in fulfillment of this great eschatological hope, which he ultimately will fulfill upon his return when he comes back to rapture the church, restore Israel, raise the dead, reign over his kingdom come, bring retribution to evil in God's creation. The Psalms anticipate these things. In the beginning of our public uh, gathering here today, we read the prophet Zechariah who anticipates these things. The Psalms also not only are eschatological looking forward at what is to come, but the Psalms also look back at what has taken place. Look back at Passover. Think about what God did in, in, in rescuing us. And now look forward and think about what is awaiting in the renewal of all things. As we await, we are called to these Psalms into thanks to God. Thank you, God, for all you have done. Palm Sunday is a gathering for us to give thanks to God. That is the first point on the outline, giving thanks. This psalm is interestingly situated between the shortest and the longest psalm in the Hebrew Bible. It is interestingly located in the way that I've already covered in terms of how it fits in the Tanakh with this eschatological edge and this historic edge. In the New Testament, this psalm, 118, is actually the most referenced chapter of the psalm in God's revelation to the church. Psalm 110 is significant too. It's used about five times in the Old Testament. Whereas this psalm, there's nine references to it. And uh, for those of you who have the outline, I have them in one of the questions referenced there so that you can study it together with your community group. So it's important. This psalm is the most quoted one in the New Testament. It ought to be familiar to Christ's church. And so without further ado, let us begin by reading this text. Psalm 118. We'll read pieces of it and I'll stop and explain things. Verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say. Say what? That his, his, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say. Say what? His loving kindness is everlasting. See the repetition of this phrase here. His loving kindness is everlasting. It just keeps repeating in this antiphonal call to the people of God, the nation of Israel, to give thanks. Antiphonal, what do I mean by that? Well, an antiphone is a kind of read and response experience. It's like a chant with a refrain. When I say, Lakers, you say go, Lakers go, Lakers go, and you Laker haters, no, right? Like it's, it's a call and response, antiphone. Antiphone comes from the Greek antiphone. Anti means opposite. Okay, phone means voice, opposite voices. When you get together with your family at the table, when you get together in corporate worship, there would be one who would say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then everyone would respond, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, his loving kindness is everlasting. So it, it was meant to have this antiphonal experience to it. The priests would read it. The house of Aaron is referenced here and the worshipers who have gathered. So the priests, they, they would shout out and the people would respond together in one voice. Unified as the people of God in one voice. Specifically here in Psalm 118, with one voice they are giving thanks to God for his loving kindness. Now in the Hebrew language here, our, our translated word loving kindness is a really interesting Hebrew word known as chesed. Chesed. And chesed is a word... That, that has a lot of kind of semantic range in it. It means merciful, it means favor, it means loyalty, it means love, it means unfailing kindness, zeal, deep devotion. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the ancient Hebrew text, the, the, the translators taking it from, uh, from, from, from Hebrew and moving it into Greek, when they came across chesed, they translated it as mega elios. Now, you might, you don't know Greek, maybe not, but mega, you go, oh, mega, mega mine, mega, mega, mega win, you know, mega's big, elios, uh, mercy or goodness, right? This is a lot of mercy. This is a lot of goodness. Mega elios, hesed. This, this, our word, uh, loving kindness might not fully capture this. And sometimes that happens with languages where you just can't uh, render it over. So it's good for you to know that here the word hesed is used. 
And Jewish theology has said is used of God's love for the children of Abram. Here in Psalm 118, the children of Abram are called to see Hesed in God. They are told that God's Hesed is specifically everlasting. Hesed Olam. Olam is everlasting, in perpetuity, ongoing. Hesed Olam. Now, this language of Olam is the same language that is used with regard to God's covenant that he made with Abram and subsequently to the people of Israel. That covenant is referred to as the Olam Berit. So we're talking about Hesed Olam for the people of the Olam Berit. If, if you had uh, the book of Genesis in your mind, you know that in the book of Genesis, in the 17th chapter, we read about this covenant with Abraham. Let me quote it for you so you can stay in the Psalms because we're going to pick it back up in just a moment. But Genesis 17, verse 7, God says to Abram, Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an alam berit, an everlasting covenant, to be your God and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for the everlasting possession. I will be their God. That language of everlasting, of olam, that everlasting talk is tied to this hesed talk. His covenant is everlasting. He is everlasting in his loving kindness. The psalmist is using this everlasting language of a God who has vowed unconditionally to do things for the people. Things that express this loving kindness as we translate it. The covenant is not contingent upon men. The promise that was made to Abram, it wasn't something that Abram merited or earned or was even looking after. He was undeserving and undesiring when God came to him. And while mortals are faithless, God remains faithful. The history of his people is a testimony to the faithfulness of God. No matter how far they wander, God is a faithful shepherd who gathers his people with his hesed. Over time and through their sin, the people learn of God's hesed. They learn of God's mercy. They learn we shouldn't run from him. But instead, we should run to him in repentance because he is a good God who forgives and restores. Adam and Eve, why did they run and hide? How different would the story have been if the moment Adam saw what his wife had done, he grabbed her and ran with her in his arms to bring her to the creator and say, this is what has happened. We know you are a good God, an everlasting God, and we, we come to you for your mercy. But instead, he wanders as well. Instead, he eats as well. Instead, he hides as well. And so too, we see this in the history of God's people. So too, you see this in your own life if you are tentative to be able to look within. You know we are prone to wander, and yet we have no reason to be, because in him there is this chesed olam. In him, he is the olam berit, the God of the covenant, who is everlasting, a mighty God who saves and secures. This is the reality of his saving power and his securing providence. It gives his people every reason to give thanks, and so Psalm 118 calls on Israel, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. And over time, the thankfulness of the people would be tested. It would be tested inevitably because of the wandering reality of our sinful state. But, but, but you see, thanks thrives in trust. And trials will, will, will tempt trust. And when things don't go your way and you lose trust with it, things not going your way, thanksgiving has a way of fading which brings me to the next point on your outline. We, we move from giving thanks now to gaining trust. As we keep reading, we see uh, mention of distrust and distress. We see mention of fear. We see feelings of helplessness that, that, that turn ultimately in trust. We'll see that, that, that the psalmist is pulling the people into trust. The people are experiencing a growth of trust, but it comes, it comes at a cost. It comes through trial. Draw your eyes at the text in verse 5. For my distress I called upon the Lord, and the Lord answered me, and he set me in a large place. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Verse 7, the Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. This is a lesson that is learned the hard way. People who say they will be there for you, and they are not for you. 
People who say they are committed to community, but distress and fear will reveal the emptiness of those words. In the case of the psalmist, we see these raw moments where, where fear and distress is laid on the table, where feelings of helplessness are described. As the psalmist vents these emotions, they are met with theological truths. I subjectively feel this. I'm feeling this way. I subjectively feel this way. But listen, the psalmist says, God is objectively this way. This is what I am feeling. This is what I'm feeling. But this is who he is. And this is why we say one of our, our mantras around here in terms of discipleship, that you want to be careful with feelings. Because feelings make horrible, horrible masters, but feelings make wonderful servants. They make wonderful servants. Feelings are great, especially when they're firing in the right direction. And by that, when they're firing according to God's word. So the psalmist, throughout the text of the psalms, you'll get these raw experiences. Betrayed, uh, afraid, uh, wandering, uh, 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 sin, and what have you. And, and, and the psalmist expresses those feelings, but ultimately the psalmist will turn and say, here's the objective theological truth. I subjectively feel this, but I objectively know that God is this way. I feel fear, but he is my refuge. He is my fortress. He is my protection. It is worth highlighting here that the use of the first person is in the singular pronoun. This is, an, this is an individual crying out. The words I and me are used in the text. Do you see that? Thus it showed a personal encounter with the worshiper and with God. It's a personal encounter. The worshiper has come to gain uh, a trust, has come to learn trust through an experience with God, through distrust and distrust. Uh, the psalmist was in a tight bind, but God opened the way. And, and, and set them in a large place, the text says, which is a way of saying a safe place. We don't have the background detail of exactly what was going on uh, for the first person in this case, but what we do have is a testimony of trust. This person had hatred around them. This person had no help around them. Things were closing in on them. But God himself, in deliverance and in providing a refuge for this helpless situation, showed himself to be everlastingly good, showed himself to be overflowing with hesed. On this note, I might say to you that this issue of personal trust and experience is why it is important for us to, first of all, know Scripture, that is, to know God's track record of his faithfulness, to know truths about him so that we can rehearse them and be sanctified by sound doctrine, by his mighty and inspired word. So it's important, might I say, first of all, to know scripture, but second of all, to know saints. And by that, I specifically mean seasoned, sanctified seniors. Shout out to all the seniors, the godly seniors in the house today. People who have lived through hard things over time and have learned from those hard things. I uh, shared with you earlier Pastor Tony going through a surgery and, and watching him approach surgery with such confidence and such joy and such trust in the Lord. Those are lessons that are caught, not taught. Those are lessons that when you know someone and you're next to them, you begin to, you begin to pick up these things. Seasoned, sanctified saints, older saints who've gone through stuff. Widow, widows who've lost loved ones and continue to love well. Sufferers who know what it's like to go through chronic and daily pain, but are still filled with joy. Disciples who have sacrificed to be on mission in the church. Parents who've buried their children. Cancer survivors, but still cry out, Lord, though you slay me, I will trust you. Those are people that you need to have in your life. People who've gone through the pain and been purified through the process of it. You want these saints in your life to remind you of God's faithfulness and to give you perspective. Because God uses pain for the purposes that belong solely to him. That, that are you know, beyond our understanding. But he uses those in a fallen world for his good. When we forget this, we tend to forget that uh, God himself is said Olam, that he is there for us. And we rely instead of, of, of his grace, we rely on our own self-sufficiency, which inevitably leads to sin and more pain, as it often makes us vulnerable to fallen default thinking and to fallen behavior, to isolating, to gossiping, to echo chambering, to finding folks who tell us what we want to hear. So instead of listening to these godly, godly seasoned, sanctified saints in our lives, 
we, we instead will turn from them. And we, we will find in so doing, the volume on our own voices gets louder in our heads and in our hearts. And might I say that age doesn't uh, make anyone godly. You could be old and uh, uh, quite far from the Lord and, and filled with everything but wisdom. I'm talking about those who've gone through things and have learned and have been brought in repentance and faith. You'll learn from them. They'll teach you things. They'll point you to Christ. You, you, will, you will find so much in them. The psalmist we have here, and we know from this voice, though we don't know all of the details, this is someone who has gained trust. This is someone who knows from experience that God is faithful. This is someone who feels a, a fear, who feels a helplessness that runs deep and wide, and yet tells us, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. This is someone who was uh, not a stranger, not a stranger to pain, which leads to the next point on your outline. We move from this point of giving thanks and gaining trust now to gripping thorns. Draw your eyes back at the text. We left off at verse 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All of the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. Said it three times now. You pushed me violently so that I was uh, falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So here we don't get all the details, but we hear of the experience. We hear of the one who has been gripped by thorns, the one who has been surrounded by enemies who want him for dead. This appears to be the voice of a leader in Israel, perhaps a king, perhaps a military leader. The nations have surrounded the people of Israel. The temptation would then to be to rely on the, the, the strength of the king or the strength of Israel's military in battle or shrewdness in politics. The passion cautions trusting in earthly princes and powers over the, over the heavenly king. Instead of making peace with paganism, instead of making buddies with Babylon, instead of making allies with Assyria, instead of making pals with Persia, the people of God are called to see their Lord and his strength and, and, and to respond to him in song. In fact, it is worth noting that Israel's army included a worship team. It seems a bit counterintuitive, doesn't it, to begin a battle with a praise parade? Uh, let alone to have a Shabbat service, a day of rest, in the midst of enemies attacking you, in the midst of midnight marauders, you're going to have an evening off, and you're going to gather uh, together, and you're going to start reading psalms and having a Seder when bad guys are on your back. But often in Israel's history, they observed these holy days in battle because worship was their strength and salvation. That is a physical rescue from literal nations wanting to cut them off. Israel's military included a praise team that would, lead, that would lead the troops in song in the face of enemy, in the face of battle. The king or the priest or the leader calls out the trial, and, and there's this heavy grip of thorns around him that is described, this suffocating grip that stands to squeeze out his life. However, this trial is not only his, his, his cry. In the text, we see him crying out not just about trial, but crying out about trust. Crying out not just about being gripped by an enemy, but crying out about being gripped by God. The hand of the Lord holds him. The hand of the Lord has gripped him. And he extinguishes, the text says, the fire of the thorns around them. In his name there is victory, victory for the covenant people of Israel. Many scholars believe that the context here of this text is in the post-exile. After the pain of exile, post-exile, after Israel had been in, in, in exile, kicked out of the land, the exile mirrors Egypt and the Exodus. Just as the, the, the people were once held in bondage in Egypt, and they were brought into the land in the Exodus. Later in their history as they wandered, later in their history as they wavered, they found themselves in the same place, outside of the land of promise. Post-exile, they find themselves coming back into the land. You see, God is faithful to his promises. He made an unconditional promise that in spite of them, he would do these things. Israel had lost her way. Israel had lost her land. But God in his said. God in his, in his covenantal olam has raised up a remnant to return them to the place of promise. Hebrew scholar Dr. Alan Ross writes that Psalm 118 was written for the Feast of Tabernacles. 
uh, perhaps even the, the first celebration of the feast when the people returned from exile. The content certainly suggests that God, in establishing the nation, triumphed over the nations and their plans. At least it can be said that the contents describe a festal procession to the sanctuary for sacrifice and praise. Now, as we keep reading, we're going to see this talk about the sanctuary, you guys. We're going to read next, and this is the next point on the outline. That is the point of, of, of the gates of the temple. Draw your eyes back to the text where we left off in verse 15. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I, I will not die, but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely. Again, the seasoned saints who have learned from God's discipline. Here you hear the voice. But he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates. This is talk of sanctuary talk of temple open to me the gates of righteousness and i shall enter through them and i shall give thanks to the lord this is the gate of the lord the righteous will enter through it i will give thanks to you for you have answered me you have become my salvation the language is fitting of israel in post-exile they're they're coming back to the land they're coming back to the altar they're coming back to build the temple in fact in the providence of god uh, I, I say in the providence of God, because I didn't design it this way. I realized it as I committed to teaching Psalm 118. Just thinking about Palm Sunday, I've taught all the canonical texts. And I thought, well, what's something I haven't done? Well, I haven't taught the, the psalm that many of these canonical texts all reference. So let's do that. And in the providence of God, I, I, I thought, well, this is great. It's post-exile. And what, what's our new sermon series, Faithful to Fulfill? It's a study of the text of the post-exile. For those of you who've been in, in faithful attendance and faithfully listening online, we've been studying post-exile. So what we've been learning in Ezra and that leading up and we, where we left off, they're building that altar. And, and where we left off, they're about to build the temple. This psalm is a psalm that was read in that historic moment. We've been freshly looking at the return of the exiles as a church, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, literally rebuilding the gates of the Lord to restore worship according to the Torah of Moses. And here we are with the Tehillim that they would have been singing and praising in obedience to the Torah. We see inside of our study the people come back to the land and there in the land they face opposition. They are literally surrounded by enemies who hate them and want them dead. It's a fitting text for us to be studying as many in our comfortable Christian culture in North America have mistaken 2020 and COVID quarantines for real persecution. Fosse and Newsom have nothing on Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. It really puts things in perspective. Part of why it's good to know those seasoned, seniored saints is they'll put things in perspective. You go, man, this is unfair. Man, I can't believe this. And then they pull you aside and go, let me tell you about something. You go, oh, yeah, what was I thinking? You read these texts. You see what God's people have been carried through. The psalmist was on the heels of real suffering, actual persecution. They were not going to let it stop the mission of God's people in the earth, nor interfere with their worship. In joy, they come. In joy, they would not jump ship. In joy, they would not leave town, but they would head to Jerusalem. In joy, they wouldn't bounce to Babylon. They wouldn't, as we say, leave church over it. They were committed to the corporate gathering. They were committed to God's timing. They were committed to the gates in that place being rebuilt and the righteous being there when it happened so that they could re-enter it. The hope of this text stirs the psalmist into deep praise. Verse 15 speaks of the tents of the righteous. And this is why this is tied to the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the language of, of tents, the pilgrims who come from exile. It matches the language of Sukkot. This is what we've been studying. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, interchangeably uh, Sukkot, the Feast of Tents. This is the Holy Week when God's people would gather in tents and they would spend a week in repentance and rest. That was the weapon of God's people, rest and repentance. How, we, how will we build the gates? How will we uh, overcome uh, physical enemies around us? We will rest and we will repent. Seems counterintuitive, does it not? Seems counterintuitive. And yet God continues to raise up his people and to pour out upon his people. Oh, that in such a time as this, we have such an important reminder of this and we experience it in our own lives. Has not God been faithful to Delray Church in 2020 and 2021? 
We have baptisms coming. We have people coming to Christ. We see his hand upon the people. And it's in spite of us. It's in spite of the world. It's just his covenantal faithfulness. God raises up Israel in the text. He brings them off of exile. They haven't done anything in the exile to deserve this. This is all God's faithfulness. They journey back to the land in tents, Sukkot, tents, tabernacles, booths, Sukkot. And there they sacrifice. At the end of the week of tabernacles, there is the Passover. There is the sacrifice. And you come to the temple with the sacrifice. You come to the temple, and there is the cornerstone. There the post-exiles lay down the cornerstone to rebuild the temple. Verse 22, let's read about it. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O oh Lord, do save, we beseech you. O oh Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord, this is all language of the temple. It's language of post-exile. It's language of Jerusalem. It's language of Sukkot, of tabernacles. Verse 22, speaking about that cornerstone. In the post-exile, that's how you build a building. You start with a cornerstone. They lost their temple in exile. Now they come back to build it. Verses 19 and 20 speak of the gates going up. Temple talk. Rebuilding the ruins. God is proving himself faithful. He's bringing his people back to life in the land. Not for their future, but for his fame. So that the nations would know that the God of Israel is the God of creation. The fact these people are still alive through everything that has taken place to them shows us that someone's hand is on them. Shows us that someone has a grip on them. You see, they were to be a nation of priests to the world. The temple was to be a porthole of the heavens to the earth. God's own dwelling among his people. They were there for a reason. And otherwise, there was no reason for them to be in existence. I think of that in regards to our, our own church here. And some of the seasoned saints that have been here for decades can tell you the same. There, there's, there's no reason for us to be here. This little church in the corner of Los Angeles planted here in the 1950s, how, how we have remained in this tough place that is Los Angeles, it's all by the grace of God, it's all by his power, and all of the members on our staff, we know that, and we look at what God is doing, and we go, wow, he just works in spite of us, he's so good, and we come to him with our plans, and he laughs at us, and we come to him with our dreams, and he overwhelms our dreams with even more. He is a faithful and mighty God who calls his people and secures his people. Israel is the ultimate picture of this in his word. And all of this look forward. All of this, the regathering of the temple, was all looking forward for Israel in that moment when God would regather his people and he would bring his presence in a way more powerful than the temple would have ever known. God's presence among humanity would be known in a more intimate and revealing way than they could have imagined in the post-exile. God promised Abram that he would work through his family line way before the exile and the post-exile. Not just in giving them descendants, but in giving humanity a deliverer. Humanity was ruined by sin. Abraham was no stranger to sin's enslaving powers. You, you read of him in Genesis, and, and he was a man whose life was a hot mess. An unworthy pagan and polygamist who, who, who God chose to save and use. God took a, a polygamist, pagan, human trafficker and turned him into the father of the promise. Further to the promise of, of sending him to the land and establishing the people and doing these things, he promised that he would send one through him who would actually save humanity, who would rescue us from paganism and polygamy and darkness. That one was Jesus, the Savior, Abraham's seed, Israel's Messiah. The blood of the King of David ran through his veins, and the promises of God to, 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 to the people of Israel are manifest. As they're regathering in the land, that's all in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. That cornerstone that we're reading about is the very cornerstone of the temple that Christ would come to, as we will see in the Gospel of Mark, and that he would cleanse. And there in that temple where God manifested his presence, there would be the manifestation of God's presence literally in the flesh. And that leads to the next point on the outline. Grace tabernacled. We'll turn quickly from the book of Psalms into the gospel of Mark. And we're going to see how Mark quotes Psalm 118. 
and we're going to see this message of grace being tabernacled among us. As you turn to Mark, let me remind you of the language of the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we are told that Jesus in the incarnation literally tabernacled among us. The tabernacle of God to fallen humanity. Jesus is described by John as being one with the Father and one with the Spirit. Jesus is lifted up as, as the eternal Son, one with the Father and the Spirit. He's uplifting, John is, in the text of the Gospel of John, the triune God, treasured and trusted, told from the rooftops of ancient Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the Roman Empire, into Africa, into Asia, and into the Americas. We stand here today gathered in the name of the one who is love, eternally dwelling as Father, Son, and Spirit because of the Son who came and tabernacled among his people. The feasts of Sukkot picture this. The text of the psalm anticipate this. The Gospel of John, hopefully you're tur you've turned to Mark, but I'm talking about John to get you ready for Mark. John opens his Gospel with the reality of the God who has come to tabernacle among us, and he uses the imagery of the Hebrew Bible to explain this. Speaking which, the imagery of this very psalm, Psalm 118, is used in the New Testament, as I shared with you in the beginning, a handful of times, nine times, the, the Christ, the man from Nazareth, is God in the flesh. Look at Psalm 118. Think about what you've seen in Psalm 118. You'll, you'll find it quoted in Matthew 21, Mark 12, Luke 20, 1 Peter 2, Acts 4. It's, it's echoed in John 10. The New Testament uplifts Jesus as the prophetic quarterstone who is rejected by mortal men. Let's quickly look at the Markian account of Palm Sunday. I'll try to tie it together. We'll go back to Psalms and we'll close out Psalm 118. Mark 11. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. The Passion begins. Palm Sunday. The chapter is very clearly indicating that the Passion didn't happen to Jesus. Rather, he came on purpose for the Passion. Seeing him en enter into Jerusalem in verse 2 of Mark 11, look at the text. You see him enter into Jerusalem. And in verses 2 through 7, look at the text. Jesus is in full control of everything. The plan is unraveling according to plan. What's the plan? to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, accompanied on a colt, and to be greeted by pilgrims with, 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 with psalms. Mark chapter 11, verse 7. They brought the colt to Jesus. They put their coats on it. He sat on it. Mark 11, 8. They spread their coats on the road, and they spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. They spread out palms. It's palm, that's why we call it Palm Sunday, because they were spreading out palms. Now, what are they doing in spreading out these palms? Well, culturally... The waving of a palm branch was associated with a time of, of, of military conquest or unrest. Israel is under Roman occupation. The people wanted their oppressors to be overthrown. Jesus didn't come, however, to overthrow Rome. He came to overthrow sin and death itself, to, to die a vicarious death for sin, to rise victorious over the grave, showing that he had done this. The king has come to Jerusalem not to overthrow political powers, but to overthrow the kingdom of darkness. And he has come to Jerusalem simply to die. He rides humbly on a donkey in peace. He is greeted, though, with militaristic imagery that has nothing to do with peace. In its context, you see those palms. You're like, oh, shoot, it's about to go down. There's the palms. Uh, you might grab your little kids and say, let's get out of Jerusalem because something's about to go down. There's chance of war. It may seem calm in our modern culture, but it was tense in its context. There's great ethnic strife at the time between the Gentile Romans and the Jewish people under the, the empire. The scene of Palm Sunday, understood in its context, had all sorts of these political tensions and ethnic tensions. We think of our contemporary world like maybe an old military photo of Nazi Germany and seeing the crowds of Nazi uh, uh, German soldiers marching. You go, oh, I don't want to be, I don't want to be there. That looks scary. Seeing the images of Jewish uh, sufferers in the face of that, I don't want to be there. That looks scary. Or more contemporary examples, we might think of white nationalists who used tiki torches to light up Charlottesville in 2017 as they shouted racial epithets. Or more recently, mobs in Seattle chanting anti-law enforcement, anti-government, just anarchy, as they're literally burning the place down with violence and vandalism and, and, and arson. I watch the news and I go, man, I don't want to be in Portland. I don't want to be in Seattle. That's a really scary place to be. You read Mark 11 and you see him breaking out the palms. You want to have a similar response. 
I don't want to be there. That looks crazy. Uh, the march at the Capitol. Hey, it's one thing to protest. What are you guys doing? Someone is dead. I see blood. I see police getting beat up. I don't want to be there. I want to get out of there. Mark 11, they're breaking out palm branches. Uh, uh, wait, wait, wait a second. What's going on? This is an anti-government anarchy sentiment. This, they, they wanted to be saved from Rome's tyranny and occupation of their land, which I totally understand. I think it's fair. I might be inclined towards that. I just went with my wife and kids there. Now, rumor on the street at the time of Mark 11 is that Jesus has powers. He heals people. Dead people raise up. Blind people see. Uh, he, he, he could be our Messiah. We read in prophecy, Zechariah, he's going to overthrow the bad guys. Oh, snap, Zechariah, he's going to come on a donkey and a colt. Oh, maybe he's the one. Yeah, get the palm branches. Let's do this. Feast of Tabernacles. Everyone's in town. Passover. We're thinking about God who rescued us from those Egyptians. Surely he'll rescue us from the Romans. Yeah, it's going down again. There's about to be a new Passover, and punks are going to jump up to get beat down. Yeah, get your palms. Let's go. Verse 9, they went in front, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, 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 Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna, waving palm branches, which, again, historically are used in the context for military and nationalistic imagery. They're shouting Hosanna, which is a word that means save us now. They want political and national and military saving. They're not saying save us now of our sins. They're saying save us now from the sovereign nation on our back. This is like the Boston Tea Party, right? The Sons of Liberty who want to lead the people in protest against foreign powers. Get out of here. Let's throw all this tea in the water. Yeah, we're done. You know, this is, this, is, this is the image of that. Let's get them off of our backs. Let's be liberated. The sons of Abraham want liberation. It makes the entry of our Lord into the city of Jerusalem a bit anticlimactic from our modern position looking at it. Instead of readying for repentance, they're rallying for riot. And here comes Jesus, low-key on a donkey. He enters not with fanfare to beat down Rome, to use those powers that he's used to heal the blind and raise the dead and to walk up into Herod's castle and just punk him with those powers. Instead, he has come to die at the hands of the oppressors of his people. Matthew and John tie the donkey to prophecy. We read that at the beginning of service in Zechariah 9. And they also tie it to Psalm 118. Matthew and John do. Mark does. Luke does. Prophecy. Ancient, ancient praise to Halim. Here's the anticlimax. The people are missing what's happening before their eyes. What's, what's actually standing before their eyes. They're not missing just what's happening. They're missing, they're missing who's there. The, the people are speaking of a con coming kingdom as the king is standing before them. Seemingly, they want the kingdom, but not the king. They want salvation, but not the savior. They want heaven, but not God. They, they have not come in worship of the gracious God who tabernacled in flesh before them. No, they have come with a political agenda. They have come not in intercession for the sins of the nation, but, but, but they have come in hopes of insurrection for their nation. They, they, their worship had become overly political. Their trust was in the princes, just like Psalm 118, which this text is pointing us to, says, do not do. And they are in the presence of the Prince of Peace and the Lord of Lords. In Mark 11, 11, Jesus confronts the empty worship of the temple. Look at the text in Mark 11, 12 through 13. Jesus curses one of Israel's national symbols, the fig tree, as an indictment on the people. Keep in mind of the timeline of things, what's going on. The king has offered his kingdom. The people do not want him. They call out Hosanna. They're waving palm branches, symbols and sayings of those who are seeking political figure to provide for them nationalistic hopes and not a call of sacrifice to repentance and faith. Now, to be very clear, there's nothing wrong with nationalism in and of itself. To be sure, it has to be in subjection to the scripture in Christ. But there's nothing wrong with loving your culture. There's nothing wrong in caring about your nation uh, I consider myself an exceptionalist. I can't think of any other place in the world, and I've traveled the world a lot where I would want to be the United States of America. And as much as California is a crazy place, California too represent Los Angeles. I love this place. I care about this place. I represent this place. There's nothing wrong about caring for your nation. There was nothing wrong for those Jewish people to actually care about their homeland and care about the powers that were on their backs. 
Where it goes wrong is when it's not undergirded by repentance and faith in Scripture. We think about uh, recent mass shootings. We think about racial hatred. We think about the sanctity of life from the womb to the tomb. Those are matters in our culture that as North Americans we should care about. And we should care as citizens of North America and say, these are wrong. This ought not to be this way. There's a better way for our nation. We should care about that stuff. The Jewish people were right to care about that stuff at the time of Jesus. We should care not only for our citizenry and for our land, but also for uh, non-citizens who come through the land. We think about the migrant crisis. We think about human trafficking. We think about international crime. These are all matters of God's common graces. They, they They are fine for us to care about. So to be clear... What's going on here in the text isn't like a godly nationalism. It's an ungodly nationalism. They're caring more about political power. They're caring more about getting uh, Rome handled than they are about handling their own repentance and faith. So Jesus walks into the temple to cleanse the temple. There's commercialization and corruption in your temple. You've stopped preaching and proclaiming the things that are of me. You care more about politics than you do care about the things of the Lord. The enemies surround Jesus just like they do in Psalm 118, and there's no victory. And just like in the post-exile where there's the cleansing of the temple that we've been studying with Ezra, and they got to get the idols off, and they got to they got to they got to set up that altar in the temple, and they got to cleanse thing. Jesus does exactly what Ezra and 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 Zerubbabel what they do. They've got to cleanse things. Jesus goes into the temple Palm Sunday. He cleanses. In Mark 11, 20 through 26, Jesus powerfully curses the national symbol of the people, the fig tree, again, and he calls on his disciples to come to God in faith for forgiveness. In verses 27 through 33, further confrontation is made in Jerusalem, and Jesus boldly proclaims his authority, and what does he do? He invokes the ministry of John the Baptist, who came in the spirit of Eliyahu, Elijah. Think back to what I said about the Elijah cup and the messianic expectation, the cup of the vine, the cup that you leave on the table. Hey, kids, go see if he has come. This anticipates this kingdom. And then Jesus takes this image of the prophet and this hope of the last days and the cup of the vine, and he offers a parable about a a vineyard. And there's peace and there's purity and there's renewal that he anticipates. It is no wonder that Mark 11 moves into Mark 12 into this parable of the vineyard. The parable that Jesus gives, he speaks of violent men who come and attack a servant of a man with a great vineyard. And they do it a second time. They murder both of these servants. And, and then, then a third time, the beloved son is sent to the vineyard, and, and they kill the beloved son. Look at Mark 12, verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Will he come and destroy the vine growers? Will he give the vineyards to others? Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord as it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him and yet they feared him for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they fled away and they went away. Jesus takes the language of the psalm that we've been studying. The renewal of the temple at God's hand of Israel in the face of her enemies. And he says, you are those enemies. You are those that have politicized, that have scandalized, that have gone astray. You are those that are standing in the way of the very presence of God that now has tabernacled among the people. Sukkot is taking place in front of them. The Shalash Relagim, the festivals where the people come to the temple is taking place in the gospel of mark they have gathered they have come in tents it's the time for passover and jesus brings up the very psalm that they would be rehearsing in their homes and says this is happening before your eyes if you were reading the count in matthew's gospel i love the way it's worded there matthew 21 42 jesus brings up psalm 118 he says haven't you read the scriptures haven't you read the scriptures And then he goes on in Matthew 21, 42. The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to another people, producing the fruit from it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces, but whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. It is very clear the king had offered a kingdom to the people, and he was rejected. After withering the tree, after punking them with a parable, Jesus goes to the Psalms. The, the, the parable was a really oh-dang moment 
The servants who you killed, those were the prophets who were sent. And look at what they did to Elijah. Look at how they opposed him. Look at what they did to John the baptizer. He gets his head lopped off. God sent prophets to you and you killed them. Killed by thugs, the religious and political leaders of the day. And then God sends the son and you murder him as well. And there it's the son who's telling them this. There it's the stone son who's telling them this. The son who is beloved of the father. The same language that is used at the baptism. Behold my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the beloved son. The beloved son. He is the cornerstone. In Jewish tradition, there's not time to get into it, but there was all sorts of interpretations around what the cornerstone was in Psalm 118. At the time of Jesus, there was lots of interpretation. Was this David's son? Was this Abram's son? Was this the Messiah? Is this the temple? And Jesus pulls all that together quite literally in himself. I am the one who has come. I am the one, the promise of the patriarchs. I am the one, the seed of David. And oh, the providential irony that it's all happening around Sukkot. Everyone is in town. It's a shalosh ragelim. Everyone comes to town, a pilgrimage holiday. So everyone's there. Think about it as like Thanksgiving and your family comes to town. Everyone's there to hear this, to hear God's truth. That's the final point on your outline, God's truth. And it takes us back to the final three verses of Psalm 118. Quickly, Psalm 118, God's truth. We left off with three verses to finish the chapter. This amazing chapter that all the Gospels use to talk about Palm Sunday. The amazing overtones of, of the Feast of Tabernacles and the Passover and Jesus and the cornerstone. The rejected son, the rejected cornerstone. Jesus says, I, I am he. The Lord is God, verse 27. And he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with, corn, with, with, with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my son, and I give thanks to you. You are my God, and I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Just how it starts, it ends with the talk of his loving kindness. Just, just as we come to this final point of God's truth, we see Psalm 118 is reminding the people of, 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 of his hesed, of olam. He's, he's everlasting. But they're reminding the people of sacrifice. Under Zerubbabel and Ezra, the Jewish people rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah comes and rebuilds the gates so that it's fortified. They're safe and secure. But more than safety and security, what did God want for, from his people? Sacrifice, worship, true religion, true spirituality. You are unclean. The people and the priests would have to ceremonially wash themselves to, to picture symbolically their, their sin. And then they would take an animal, a living, innocent animal, and it would be tied down with cords to the horns of the altar, and an animal would bleed out for them. And in that, you have a picture of something innocent dying in the place of something guilty, something dirty. You must wash yourself to be clean. You must offer that which is innocent in the place of your guilt. This is all a picture of the gospel. So when Jesus says, I'm that cornerstone, the place where the Ark of the Covenant would rest, the presence of God, that's me. I'm the presence of God. I'm not, I have come not just as priest, but I have also come as sacrifice. This psalm is written long before Calvary, but it anticipates all of what we celebrate in Calvary. All of what we will celebrate this Friday night when we gather for our Good Friday service outside. And we worship, we worship the beloved son, the rejected cornerstone. Friends, this earth is going to pass. A new earth is going to come. There will be a resurrection. Evil will be judged. Peace will be made. In Revelation, there is a new Jerusalem that comes, a new temple that comes from the heavens to the earth, and with it comes the Messiah. And, and the Messiah in the book of Revelation, our last book of our scripture, the last words of our Messiah to the church, you know what they are? Yes, I am coming. I am coming. And so we cry out to him, the rejected cornerstone, come again, Lord Jesus. Communion anticipates him. Grab your cups. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, 1 Corinthians 11, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The beloved son, the rejected cornerstone, the one who was tied down with cords on the altar of Calvary for us, who became flesh for us, that we might not only be one with him, but one together. And so we as a family as they did in the ancient days when they had the Haggadah and they read the very psalm we read today, 
We gather and we celebrate him. Let's eat, brothers and sisters. We are his body. And we are his body by his blood. Our Lord was rejected. His people will be too in this age. Do not let your heart be troubled. Jesus told us we would face hard times. Jesus told us, Scripture warned us, that from among his people there would be those who would arise and bring division and speak things that are not true and draw disciples after themselves, that we would be tossed to and fro, that the world would be filled with opposition and, and hurt and the rest. But he came, and in his blood he gives power to his people to overcome all of those things and to come and worship of him like Psalm 118 in the face of mounting enemies, in the face of, of hard things that come upon us. And we come and we worship him. Easter is upon us, brothers and sisters. This Palm Sunday, let's worship the one who came on a donkey into town, who was met with tiki torches and violence and propaganda and said, oh, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They're missing it all. And we live in a nation and in a world where they continue to miss it at all. And what do they need to hear, brothers and sisters? There's power in the blood. It's only by the blood. It's only by his sacrifice. That's what he came to do. Let's drink. Salvation is here and now. Let us come in repentance and faith. Let us enter into a final song or two as we close our service. I'm going to pray, and then if you would rise... We'll give praise to God, for He is good. Lord, we thank You for Your Word here today. We thank You for Psalm 118, Mark 11 and 12, the parable of the vineyard, the cleansing of the temple, the tying in of the psalm. Lord, how it all fits together in You. You are sovereign. You are good. Your said is everlasting. Lord, I thank You for the ministry of Your Word. I pray that Your Spirit would move to take the Word from the page and move it deep within our hearts. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you rode into Jerusalem for us, that you suffered a, a horrible week for us, that you gave your life for us. And even here this day, for any who are far from you and do not know, know you, you, you offered yourself unto them and you called them to come. And we join with you in that call of the gospel for all to come to the God who is good, to celebrate the news that is good, the gospel. Receive these final songs of worship, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.